passage for this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 5, as we read this morning from verses 1 through 18. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Hear now the word of God. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. And when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths in our hearts this morning. Let's ask him to do so. Our Lord and our God, you possess all wisdom. We ask you today that you would share that wisdom with us. Give us insight into the holy things that you have for us. Most importantly of all, help us to understand your word so that we can understand your son. Give us faith so we can take possession of him by faith and know him truly. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I I suspect that at, at first glance, this morning's passage just seems to be a simple healing, right? This man cannot walk. Jesus heals him. Boom. The man is walking. Another miracle from Jesus. Um, And really, I want us to see more than that here because there is more than that here because what this really is, this healing is an opportunity. This, This healing is like a window into the identity and life and ministry of Jesus. In fact, 
There is more that Jesus says after our reading this morning that we are going to get into next week where Jesus takes us into the deep things of God, into matters of the Trinity, into his origin, if there is one to be spoken of. And all of those things, though, begin with this moment. So understand that this moment is not just a miracle. This moment is a window into a whole other aspect of Christ that many of us may not even think much about. And the reality is John is very interested in this. That's why John includes this passage in his gospel. Um, Not only does this passage show show us as readers the very real authority that Jesus has to heal this man, and even on this particular day, but it shows us the very real conflict that exists at a very fundamental level between Jesus and the Pharisees. And the conflict is over the way that Jesus understands himself, understands the Sabbath, and understands the reason why he came. In other words, it's one argument that shows a whole world of difference underneath of it all. It's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the problem and the conflict that happens between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so you have this relatively simple story that carries us through three really important and I think deep subjects that help us know Jesus better. First, the issue of healing. Second, the issue of the Sabbath. And finally, the issue of authority is raised. And so you have the healing, you have the Sabbath, you have the authority. All three of those are going to structure what we do here this morning. Um, and so in this passage, we're going to see not just why, what Jesus does, but why he does it and how he understands himself. And that is all here this morning, and we're going to get to that. Um, but first and most obviously in the narrative, we have the healing. Um, John introduces us in verse 2 to a particular location in Jerusalem. Uh, It's a place called the Pool of Bethesda. And by the way, up until the 20th century, liberal scholars argued that this Pool of Bethesda was a fictional invention. Uh, Liberal scholars said there was no evidence that there was a pool with five colonnades anywhere in Jerusalem. However, that has recently changed. Archaeologists have discovered this series of pools in Jerusalem. They match the description. And here's what the pools look like. You have four pools, and then in the middle, between all of the pools raised slightly higher than the other four, is a middle pool, out of which the water pours out into the four surrounding pools. And it perfectly matches John's description of these five colonnades. Something else that's really interesting is that in the years after the fall of Jerusalem, the Romans came in and they basically, what you might say, is they refurbished the area and they put up their own idols in the area. And one of the things that they put up was an idol that reflected their belief that this pool was a place of healing. And so that's some interesting reality of what's going on here, that even after the time of the Jews, this place is regarded with some superstition as a place of healing. And so here they are, they're in this place, blind people, lame people, paralyzed people. And as John puts it anyway, that's what they are. But John especially draws our attention to this man who has been an invalid for 38 years. And this man has come to believe that the only way he's going to be healed is if he makes it into the water when it is stirred up. Um, So this is a superstitious place. Um, These people are desperate for power, they're desperate for healing, they're desperate for for rescue. 
Now, the mistake here is we're supposed to look to God for our needs, not to, to magical healing pools, right? That's, that's the big fundamental error that these people have all made. But they're making it out of desperation and probably out of ignorance. And by the way, that is not an error that is confined to the first century. Um, religious people can be superstitious as well. Um, we see this even in our own century. There are televangelists. They sell prayer claws. They sell bottles of, of water, bottles of oil at ex- exorbitant high prices. And they promise that there's something magical about this. There's something about this that if you only touch it, if you only touch this prayer cloth, if you only touch this outline of somebody's hand, then something is going to happen to you. You're going to find healing. You're going to find some sort of... Um, almost like a magic genie. I don't know, know a better way to put it. I don't want to put it nicely because I think it's, it's a lie. Now, what has happened, though? In America, there are many who think of God as someone who exists to serve them. And so superstition is on the uptick, and especially as biblical knowledge diminishes. I think sometimes we look back at the 1800s and 1900s, we see the wild revivals that took place and the false teaching that spread, and we think, well, this happened because they were in a time of tremendous ignorance. But actually, if you think about it, as a percentage of the population, more people knew their Bibles than know it today. And what that means is that we are in an environment that is rife for superstition. We are in an environment where biblical knowledge, uh, uh, biblical understanding is so low that we are deeply vulnerable to falling for these sorts of things. So if you had asked this man, if you had asked this man, why haven't you been healed yet? He would have said, it's because I couldn't do it. It's because I couldn't make it down to the water. It's because I couldn't drag myself there. I couldn't get to the water. And he would say, the reason I'm not healed is because of me. You see, he he believes that this water is a divine work. He also thinks he has to help himself, right? We need to combine what God is doing with what we need to do. And if we do that, then we will find salvation. I tell you this, this is religion par excellence. This is religion, religion, religion. That's exactly what they're doing. Do and you will receive. Touch the water and you will be healed. It's religion in the worst possible way. I don't mind the word religion. Religion is a helpful category. But religion, the way I'm talking about it here, is the sort of thing that you do so that God will give to you. And there are a lot of mistakes that are being made here. But perhaps the worst is that the real power of God is far from this pool. Instead of turning to God, they're turning to things God never said in order to find Rescue, that is empty religion. And Jesus, in all his simplicity, grants healing to this man. Uh, No need for the man to do anything. The man is healed before he even is able to keep the command that he is given by God. By the way, that is how God justifies us as well. What does he do? He pronounces you as righteous in his sight by putting your faith in Jesus. You've done nothing yet. And all he has done is he has said, mine, saved. This is my child. Now, stand up, keep my law, do what I say. It's backwards from the way the world thinks of religion. The world thinks they're supposed to do in order to get from God. What is the gospel? God says, I give you life. Now, listen to me and obey me. You see how different that is. And Jesus, in all his simplicity, 
grants healing to this man. He doesn't do anything. And then eventually, after he is healed, he stands to his feet. But see, think about this. He has to be healed before he can stand, before he can obey. Friends, if you try to keep the law of God in order so that God will give you his favor, you've got it backwards. This man doesn't obey so that he can be healed. He obeys because he has been healed. Have you begun, if you have put your faith in Jesus, have you begun to obey? Have you, have you said, Lord, now that you have rescued me, I want to do what pleases you. Jesus tells him, get up, take up your bed, and walk, and it works. The power of Jesus is so immense that he really is the rescuer of helpless people. You can't get more helpless than this man. And there's nobody more helpless than men and women, boys and girls who are under spiritual bondage. The rescue comes by sheer grace to a man who does nothing to deserve it. It is the power of God expressed in a visible and glorious way. If he can do that for this man's body, we should praise him that he is able to do this with our helpless souls as well. We need to see our, bo- our souls as, as sick as this man knows his body is. We are that helpless. We are the paralyzed man by nature. We need a miracle. This is the healing. So that's the first thing we see. We see the healing. But the second, and this raises the subject of the second issue, is the subject of the Sabbath. Because this miracle does take place on the Sabbath. Now, let's talk about the Sabbath. We need to do that in order to really understand what Jesus and the Pharisees are debating here. When we talk about the Sabbath, we're, we're talking about God's plan from the very foundation of the world, from the creation of the world. We're talking about his plan that all people should take one day out of seven to rest and worship him. The Sabbath is very real. It is biblical. It is not a legalistic man-made creation. It is baked into the created order given to us before we even receive the law on Mount Sinai. What does God do? He rests on the seventh day. And he expects his people to do that. And that's before he even writes on the Ten Commandments. From the very beginning, God himself has been modeling exactly how we are to live. Work six days. Take one day to rest and devote to the Lord. The Sabbath is as relevant. It is as valid today as it was on the seventh day of creation. And it is as relevant and valid today as it was when God gave his commands to Israel on Mount Sinai. And it is still as relevant as it was in Jesus' own day too. And yet I think, I think much of the confusion the Sabbath gives people today comes from the very real confusion people have about what the Sabbath is and what it's for. People way too often think of the Sabbath. And when they think of it, they think of it only in terms of what they're meant to abstain from for the day. What they're not allowed to do for the day. And if that's how we think of it, I think our focus is in the wrong place. Um, Imagine this. Imagine if you went into marriage only focused on the fact that you don't get to cheat on your spouse now. Just imagine your whole marriage, all that it is, is I have to be devoted to this one person. Think of all the things I don't get to do now. Now look, that is one part of our marriage vows. If it's not a part of your marriage vows, 
you took the wrong marriage vows. It definitely needs to be in there, right? It needs to be baked into the marriage vows. But let's also face it. Marriage is about way more than what we're not allowed to do, right? Uh, Marriage is about flourishing. Marriage is about joy. It's about mutually building each other up. Marriage is about what's good for us as well. It's really about what God is freeing us up for. And, And one means to that good and flourishing is the command that we don't have anyone other than our spouse. And hopefully our marriages are not composed simply of us obsessing over all the things we don't get to do now. I think the Sabbath is sort of like that. Yes, part of the Sabbath is that we don't work and we don't make others work and we don't follow the sort of distractions that the world does that lead us away from worship and distract us from the Lord, from what this day is supposed to be. That's true. Those are things that God says we shouldn't do. But we need to have a positive vision of what the Sabbath is or we will resent it. We'll look at it as if it's a bad thing. Um, one of the best people, one of the best ways I've ever seen the Sabbath described is from Tim Keller. And Tim Keller says, the biblical understanding of the Sabbath is REM sleep for the soul. He says it's REM sleep for the soul. And, and what he means is this. Um, you know this if you've ever had sleep difficulties or if you've ever had to have, go in for a sleep study. It's one thing to sleep. It's another th- was one thing to lay down and close your eyes and to blank out for a while. It's another thing to get real restful REM sleep. If you ever go in for a sleep study, maybe you're not sleeping well and you go in for a sleep study, one of the things they will test is whether you're getting REM sleep. And REM just stands for rapid eye movement. And it means basically, uh, are you going into this deeper level of of subconsciousness so that you can get real rest and actually feel good when you wake up. And if you go to sleep and you sleep all night and you still wake up and say, man, I'm still tired. How did I sleep eight hours and I'm still tired? Oftentimes the doctor will say, you're not getting REM sleep. You're closing your eyes. You're blanking out for a while, but you're not getting real rest. So you see that distinction between REM sleep and real sleep? And so what what Tim Keller says is that the Sabbath is REM sleep for the soul. And what he means is that real Sabbath observance, real spiritual resting involves more than just not working, right? If you lay in your bed and close your eyes and blank out for a while, you may wake up tired and exhausted. And you may get Saturdays and Sundays off. Maybe Maybe you just get Sundays off. Let's say you work six days. You're a hardworking individual. Um... And let's say you get Sunday off. You may come to church, show up, do everything you're supposed to do. And then the rest of the week, you still feel spiritually dry, spiritually weak. You think to yourself, what is going on here? I feel like my spiritual life is so dry. And the problem is many people do think that observing the Sabbath just consists of not working on Sundays or not shopping on Sundays. And, and folks think that they're really doing what God has in mind by abstaining from those things. Um, just doing those things, though, doesn't mean you've kept the Sabbath. Why is that? Because he wants all of your attention on the Lord's day. And his reasoning isn't selfish. It's not because he's trying to ruin your life or make your life more difficult or steal fun things from you or or rob you of the fun things that you really love because God is just in the business of being a spoil sport. That is not God's way at all. 
He tells us these things because the Sabbath is what will give you real, deep, spiritual rest. He wants your good. He wants your good, and he knows what that is. That's the Sabbath. Rem sleep for the soul. Now, oftentimes, we will settle for the cheap substitute, right? Cheap sleep and rest is common in our day. Uh, Almost every Sunday afternoon, I will lay down on my bed in my, my bedroom and I will take a short nap, 15, 20, sometimes 30 minutes. I will just zonk out. But I always feel awful when I wake up. I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Every time. I know I'm not getting the kind of sleep that I actually need when I lay down for that. It's cheap sleep. It's cheap rest. And, and the world's full of people who have recommendations for what will make you feel better. They'll say, well, I have a solution to your spiritual problem. And they have all sorts of methods about what you can do, right? It's sort of the equivalent of taking a six-hour energy drink. By the way, if you drink one of those and think you can skip six hours of sleep, we need to talk about your discernment skills. Because you cannot skip six hours of sleep drinking a bottle of six-hour energy. But, But the world, in a sense, will get you this shallow sleep that you might think you need. They'll give you sort of a day off from work. Usually the world will give you a day off from work, but it can't give you the deep rest that only God can give. In Hebrews 4, the author says that there remains a rest for the people of God. And the idea for this is that biblical rest is more than just finding good relaxation methods and using that Breathe app on your Apple Watch that's totally useless. Um, The sort of rest that God has in mind for each and every one of you is a resting from actual literal work, but it's also being in worship as much as you're physically able, right? It means reading scripture. It means reading other devotional writings. It means praying with your family. It means singing. It means spending your time with the Lord. It means reading a book that you don't get the chance to the rest of the week because you're so busy. If you don't do this, You really are just getting a spiritual nap. You're just getting a light sleep when your soul is crying out for REM sleep, just like your body needs it, your soul needs it to. Now, how does this translate? The authors, the the authorities in Jesus' day aren't getting spiritual REM sleep. They've got their rules. They've got their actual physical act of abstaining from work. But they aren't using the day to do good for others. They're not even using it for the good of their own souls. So for them, the Sabbath is a drudgery. It's a hated burden. And and if they do keep it, they think they're just currying favor with heaven. And that's the danger. You can get the Sabbath right, and you can still get it wrong. You can go through the motions and despise every second of it. It is possible. It's possible. Look what happened in Jesus' time, right? The Sabbath was a, a day for spiritual nourishment, but the Pharisees, they managed to make it a ceremony to be acted out. God hates when people act out their obedience to him, all the while grinding their teeth. Oh, he hates it. If you get every single piece of, of worship or Sabbath observance perfectly acted out, but you have hate or bitterness in your heart, There's no real worship or rest in it at all. God would rather you not go through the motions at all. You remember Hosea 6.6, God says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. What is God saying there? He's saying, I gave you my law. 
I told you my will for your life, how you should worship me, how you should serve me. But if you go through the motions perfectly without love, it would be better that you did not do it at all. In fact, I wish you wouldn't. The Sabbath does not exist so we can check a box and tell ourselves that we did what we were supposed to do. The Sabbath, with all of its opportunities and graces, exists to give your exists to grow your love for the gospel and your love for God's people and your love for your neighbor. That's why the Sabbath exists. So by this point in Israel's history, though, there's been a transformation. The Sabbath has gone from being an amazing opportunity to becoming a burdensome, wearying requirement. How do I know that? Because Jesus used the Sabbath the way it was supposed to be And he got in big trouble. See, Jesus did an act of mercy on this day. And he could have waited, right? Technically, this guy's been sitting here for 38 years. And you would think, well, he can wait one more day. Then Jesus isn't technically doing work on the Sabbath, right? But he did it on this specific day. He did it intentionally on the Sabbath. Why did he do that? Because this is a day of recreation. This is a day of new life. This is a day of restoration. This is making this man wait and suffer for even one more day in the name of sticking to the rules would have been a misuse of the Sabbath. And so what this means is that Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath. Jesus never broke the scriptural commands of the Sabbath. Now, there's some confusion among people. Some people look at this passage and they say, see, Jesus is saying the Sabbath doesn't matter anymore. We only have nine commandments now. Jesus is overturning the Sabbath, some folks say. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had lost the Sabbath. They'd clouded it over with rules and regulations that God never gave. Let me give you a few examples just to show you what I'm talking about here. You couldn't do medical work on the Sabbath, according to the Jews back then. For example, you would deal with a toothache back then, and this is really disgusting, uh, by putting vinegar in your mouth. So if you had a toothache back then, you would, you would take a swig of some vinegar and you'd hold it in your mouth for as long as you possibly could. Uh, in my case, 0.3 seconds. Um, you could put your vinegar on your food, but you couldn't put it in your mouth to treat tooth pain. Right? Because on the one hand, you're treating a medical condition, and that's work, so you couldn't do that. Um, that's not in the Bible. That's in the list of rules that somebody, somebody made up. Somebody sat down and said, let's figure out what work really is, and let's think this through. And, they, and that, that dangerous path happened where someone said, well, what is work, and how do we figure this out? And as soon as they started down this path, they decided that you can't even treat a toothache on the Sabbath. Or let me give you another example of the way that they would sort of make up rules. You could walk on the Sabbath. There's nothing wrong with walking on the Sabbath. But you couldn't walk more than a thousand yards from your home. Well, that leaves the question, what is home? Hmm? Hmm. All right. Uh, So they said, well, look, if you took enough food to another location, that place could be considered your home. So they said the day before the Sabbath, you could put enough food in another location. 
Then on the Sabbath, you'd be able to walk to that place. You could, you could eat a meal there. Then you could walk another thousand yards from there. And you weren't breaking the Sabbath. Mm, see? Or think about this instance, right? What are, the, what are the Pharisees upset about here? This man is carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They had made up a rule that you couldn't carry things on the Sabbath. And, so, and that because it's work, right? Carrying that mat is work. Now, I don't know how big this mat was, but here's the interesting thing about this rule. If he had taken the mat and instead of putting it under his arm, if he had wrapped it around his back and worn it like a cape or something like that, you know, then he wouldn't have been considered working because he's just wearing clothing. He's just wearing this, this thing around himself. So Jesus is not saying the Sabbath doesn't matter now. In this context, Jesus is saying that the perverted, inflexible, loveless, merciless version of the Sabbath that the Pharisees held themselves to and everyone else to doesn't matter anymore. It is not that the Sabbath doesn't matter. It's that it's been twisted and changed so that it doesn't look at all like the way that God created it to be. In fact, it never mattered what they think because it wasn't in the Bible. Here's my encouragement. Keep the Sabbath, but truly keep the Sabbath. Don't create new rules. Don't create new regulations. Ask yourself this question. What does the Bible actually say the Sabbath is for? Don't twist it into something that God would never have recognized. Don't become so wrapped up in what is forbidden on this day that you create new commandments that God would say, I don't recognize that. I never said that. You see, this is a day for mercy, says Jesus. It's a day for worship as well. But if you stop loving others in the process, you have traded God's truth for a man-made ritual. That's what legalism is. People think that telling folks that they should keep the law is legalism. That is not legalism. Legalism is when you make up a rule that God never said, and then you get upset when other people don't keep that rule. Do not let anyone tell you, though, that Jesus was a Sabbath breaker. That is a slander. It is a slander that was invented by the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are the ones who think that. They're the ones that say that Jesus is a Sabbath breaker. And in other places, Jesus gets charged with that, and he is always very careful to refute those claims. So Jesus presents to us today the true Sabbath. See, he loves us too much to take the Sabbath away or say that it doesn't matter anymore because we still need it. We need the Lord's day. We need the Sabbath. We need a day of restoration because the world's not going to give it to us, the other six. The world is not going to give it to us because the world doesn't care what happens to our spiritual good. Third this morning, the conflict over the Sabbath ultimately leads to the issue of authority. I'm just going to be very brief with this point. Once Jesus does this healing, he experiences persecution by the Jews. And his answer to them is, is surely surprising. He says, my father is working until now, and I am working. And then John makes this comment for us as readers, because I think what John suspects is that we're not going to catch the nuance of the problem Jesus creates when he says what he says. So, so John says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
You see, there is no separating the activity and authority of Jesus. He does what he does because he is who he is. Yes, this Sabbath activity is permitted, even for a mortal man. You are allowed to heal a hurting person on the Sabbath. And by the way, we have uh, nurses in this church. And I am thankful for doctors and nurses and those who do sometimes miss our worship in this church because they're, they're healing and they're helping others. These are, these are works of mercy and these are right. You are allowed to heal and show mercy on the Sabbath, even if it means that you have to work to make it happen. It's always been that way. As far back as Jesus. And isn't just that Jesus is allowed either. It's not like Jesus is a special case. The law itself allows this. Now, why does he mention that he's only doing what his father does? One of the, one of the reasons that people, I think, misunderstand what Jesus is saying here is they think that Jesus is saying he doesn't have to keep the law because of who his father is. That's one misunderstanding. They say, ah, see, Jesus is allowed to break the Sabbath, but we're not. Jesus doesn't break the Sabbath, okay? Um, here's an illustration of what this would be like. Um, there was a girl in my high school who was the principal's daughter. And uh, I remember her coming to, late, coming to class late an awful lot, more than other kids for sure. And I remember that if the student came into class late, immediately, and maybe you remember, may remember this, or I don't even know if they do this now, but whenever, she, whenever a student would come to class late, the teacher would always say, you need to go back to the office and you need to get a tardy slip, right? Because you came to class tardy. And I just remember clear as day over and over again, this girl coming to class five minutes late and she never had to go fill out a tardy slip. <laughs> Her mom's the principal, right? <laughs> um, because she was the daughter of the principal, she sort of ran roughshod over the rules. That is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not running roughshod over the rules because, well, he's my father and I can do a little extra stuff the rest of you wouldn't be able to do. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't just saying that he gets a permanent hall pass. He is saying that he knows what he's talking about. Jesus is, is saying, you can trust what I have to say here because of who my father is. He wants them to know he's no spring chicken. He knows the law. He loves his father's law. He keeps his father's law. He quotes from the Bible so much that you know Jesus just had massive amounts of scripture committed to memory. He knows the father better than they will ever know him. He has the authority to speak and say this precisely because he and the father are equal with one another. When all of this first starts, The problem presents itself, right? This is a hurting man who needs life restored to him. And then the problem, once solved, creates a new problem. What right do you have to do this on this day? And it leads to a deeper discussion. And I hinted at this already. Next week, we are going to go into the deep end of the pool with Jesus because he has more to say. What we have said here this morning is not the end of the matter. But in a fuller sense, Jesus is about to tell us who he is. He's about to tell us how exactly he's related to the Father. But this morning, let's be satisfied with the simplicity of Jesus here. In the end, the discussion of the authority of Jesus is meaningless if we don't bow the knee to him. What good is it for us to say that we believe and trust someone if we aren't willing to listen to him? 
and obey him. The challenge for all of us today is straightforward. You say you believe Jesus. You say that you know he tells the truth. Are you willing to follow him? Jesus has authority, you say. Well, will you give your life to him? Will you, will you listen to him like he says you should? Will you obey his words? Do you and will you follow him? Let's pray. Lord, we may not be paralyzed or maybe not even disabled. And yet we know what it is in our lives and in our experience to be just as helpless. We are all entirely incapable of saving or rescuing ourselves. We need help. We need the help that only comes from you. And like this man, we want you to heal us. We ask that each day you would grant us saving faith, true faith, persevering faith. We ask that just as this man stood and walked because of your mercy, that you would have mercy on each of us so that we can walk the daily walk of faith in you through your son, enabled by your spirit. Would you do this for us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.